Isaiah chapter number 6, verse number 1 begins this way, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said, I woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this privileged opportunity to be in your house tonight. I pray that you'd take your word, that the Spirit of God would wield it, that you'd do an effectual work in our hearts and minds. We know that, Lord, there's no power lacking from your word. So, Father, help us to ensure that our heart is open, that the work that needs to take place might take place in our lives. And we'll be sure to give you the praise for it, Lord, for it's been you that's done it and not us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when Isaiah writes those first few words in the year that King Uzziah died, I think it is easy sometimes to merely treat that as though it is a chronological footnote. Just merely a, a sort of a, 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 a verbal asterisk that is provided so that we understand something about when this vision that Isaiah experienced took place. But in fact, I think when Uzziah says that, he is providing invaluable context to when the Lord showed up and made Himself known in His life. You see, Isaiah was unusual amongst the prophets in that he was a part of the royal court. More often than not, throughout Old Testament times, the prophets were not welcome in court. In fact, most of the time, they were the last person that the king wanted to see. But Isaiah spends the majority of his illustrious uh, commission and life and calling as a prophet ministering in the court. God blessed him to be able for the majority of his tenure as a prophet uh, to be ministering when there were good kings upon the throne. They were not perfect kings. In fact, Uzziah, the one that Isaiah mentions here, he died as a leper and he was struck leprous because he uh, tried to intrude upon the priesthood. Uzziah was not a perfect man. None of the kings were. But there's no question that some kings did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Some kings did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Word of God uh, denotes them and categorizes them for the most part in that way. Uzziah was a good king. And uh, he ruled and reigned uh, for the majority of his uh, reign was prior to Isaiah coming into public ministry. In fact, when Isaiah describes the time frame that he ministered, Uzziah was the first king that he ministered under. And Isaiah, if uh, history tells us correctly, spent about 60 years as a prophet. So the majority of his life he spent in the public court. And his young, formidable years he spent around King Uzziah. For King Uzziah to die, this was a pivotal and and life-changing moment in this young man's life. For him, this is, this is a big moment. 
And is it is no surprise to us that often at the big moments in life, God shows up. Uh, you can go throughout the Old Testament and you'll find that very often at moments when a choice had to be made, that's when God came by Abraham's tent door in Genesis 18. Oftentimes, whenever people are in a crisis moment, the Lord will come by as He did for Elijah and pass by the mouth of the cave. And here in Isaiah's life, at what is a very crucial and, and momentous event, God shows up and makes Himself known. I wonder if I can for a moment tonight to preach to you on this thought, finding God in the fog. Isaiah losing King Uzziah would have brought three things into his life. And let me give you these by way of a short introduction. For him, number one, it was a time of great despair. He had lost his friend and his king. I believe that God sends a clear message that evidently Isaiah picked up on about who the king really was. Because in verse number 5, when he's describing uh, his own apprehension of his sinful condition, he, he ends it by saying, For mine eyes have seen the king, capital K, not, not lowercase a, mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. This was a time of great despair for him. He had lost his king. And God shows up to remind Isaiah that there's still a king on the throne and that his deepest, dearest friend is not the king that just departed, but it's the king that remains. This was a time of great despair for him. It was a time when he was grieving, when he was mourning. And you know, very often in our lives, when we come into moments of great despair, it becomes difficult in our minds to find God. Oftentimes we want to look for Him in the loss when what we have to look for Him in is the preservation. A lot of times we want to look at what we've lost and say, where's God in that? And very often the answer is, don't look in the loss, look at what remains. And there you'll find God. It's not that God wasn't providential over the loss, but most of the time when we experience a great loss, we're not in the right state of mind to question why God did what He did. God encourages us to question why He did what He did. How else could He teach us lessons about Himself? It's not wrong to question why God does what He does. But very often when we experience a great loss, as Isaiah had just experienced in that moment of despair, we're not even in the right frame of mind. It's not that it's inappropriate to ask why. It's that it's inopportune to ask why. We're very rarely in the right frame of mind. We often approach it from an attitude and spirit of petulance and of bitterness instead of a true spiritual inquisitiveness trying to understand why God did what He did. And that's why very often we struggle to find Him. It's not that He's not there. He is there. But often we're not looking for God. We're looking for a reason. Often we're not looking for God. Sometimes we're looking for an excuse. And and very often we're not looking for God. We're looking for an avatar. We're looking for a recipient for our bitterness and for our anger. This was a time of great despair in Isaiah's life. And in those moments, sometimes it's hard to find God. Number two, it was a time of great disturbance. As a member of uh, the court, Isaiah's entire world was turned upside down at a moment's notice. Now, you'll find, and I'll say a word about this more in a moment, but you'll find that the king that ascended to the throne, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was a good king. But at this moment, Isaiah, he does not know what Jotham will be. He knows only what Jotham has been. And now that Uzziah is dead, he does not know what's going to happen. I mean, everything went from stable, everything went from the status quo to at a moment's notice, though the king had been sick for many years, he dies in just a moment, and in a moment's notice, 
His entire world is upheaved and everything is flipped upside down. And you know, sometimes in those moments we find it hard to find God. I'll tell you this, and it's been evidenced by the testimony of people that are here tonight, that your life can be flipped, turned upside down by one phone call at a moment's notice. There's tons of people, and you've heard me say this before, but there's people sitting down in emergency room hospitals all around this city whose world is in pieces. And this morning everything was fine. This morning everything was exactly how it ought to be. But their world has been greatly disturbed and their life has been thrown into upheaval. And they're searching, they're trying to figure out where God is in all this. And sometimes that can be hard to do. Not only was it a time of great despair and great disturbance, but it was potentially for Isaiah a time of great danger. As we said, Jotham had been a good king heretofore. He had reigned in the stead of his father, uh, Uzziah, when Uzziah was a leper. And he had maintained the public policies that Uzziah had, and, and he had been a good king heretofore. But what was it all going to mean now that his daddy was dead? Would Jotham continue to do that which was right in the eyes of the Lord? Certainly Isaiah had every reason to fear for his own life. Uh, He wouldn't be the first king that was killed, or the first prophet that was killed by a king. And he had he died, he wouldn't have been the last. Uh, It was a common occurrence for kings when they got outraged against the prophet of God for them to take their life. In fact, Christ describes the persecution of the Israelites against their prophets and said that uh, they had slain prophets all the way from Zechariah between the the altar all the way down to John the Baptist. Uh, It was a common occurrence. And Isaiah had enjoyed a status quo. He had enjoyed the protection and favor of his king, but now he did not know what this would mean. In fact, the great-great-grandchild of Uzziah would eventually take Isaiah's life, a wicked king by the name of Manasseh. But Isaiah, he didn't know whether Jotham would continue to be friendly towards him. Of course, history bears out that he was. But in that moment, it was potentially a moment of great danger. And oftentimes, when we are being threatened by outside forces and influences, and I don't just mean bodily harm, but when we are facing the threat of of financial ruin, when we're facing the threat of of marital ruin, when we're facing the threat of of our children's lives being destroyed uh, by the world and its influences, sometimes in those moments it's hard to find God. It's like a fog just sits down over our life. And in this fog, we find that Isaiah managed to see God. How did he do it? I want to give you three ways that you can find God when the fog settles down on your life. Look with me at verse number 1. The Bible says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. Well, where did he find him? He said, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. And with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. One cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Let me say number one tonight. In the midst of the fog, go back to the holy place, because you'll find God there. You know what Isaiah needed more than anything? He didn't need to figure out how Jotham was going to behave. He didn't need to find out why God and His providence had allowed Uzziah to die or in the first place to be struck as a leper. Uh, He didn't have to understand or know what was going to transpire. He needed one thing and one thing alone primarily. He needed a fresh vision of who God was. 
Let me tell you something. The thing that cuts through the fog quicker than anything is not finding out what tomorrow's going to hold. Because the reality is this, even if you found out what tomorrow was going to hold, guess what? It's not going to be tomorrow for very long. And there's another tomorrow following it. There's no way you can know. No man knows what a day holds. Uh, But the key is not knowing what tomorrow holds, and you know what I'm about to say, but knowing who holds tomorrow. Recognizing that regardless of the fog that is settled on your life, God is still God. God revealed four things. But let me say before I get to them that this, let me just lay it out there. When, when you have things like this happen in your life, great despair, great disturbance, great danger, when the fog settles down on your life, go back to the fundamental truths that you know about God. Remind yourself that God is still God and go back to those truths to find comfort and direction in your life. By the way, before I get to him, can I just remind you that for 30-some chapters, Job and his friends pontificate on on why God has done what He's done. And, and mountains of questions are asked by Job and by his friends about why God has done what He's done. When God finally shows up, God never answers Job's questions. He never shows up and says, Job, this is why I did what I did. In fact, to our knowledge, Job went to his grave never knowing why God did what he did. You and I know about the first two chapters of Job, but we have no reason to believe that Job did. What does God do to give peace and comfort to Job? He shows up and he spends several chapters just describing his own power and glory. One of the great lies and deceits of of the devil and of the flesh is that if you know all about it, it will make you feel better. But very often that is not the case. I can promise you this, and I, I don't believe anybody can look into a crystal ball and tell you the future. But even if, if people say, well, I just wish I knew how my life was going to wind up. You don't. Neither do I. If you knew everything that was going to come along the road of your life, you'd probably crawl up in your bed and cover your head with the blanket and never want to come out. If you knew everything that you're going to have to experience. But God, He gives us strength as our days. And He gives us daily bread, day by day. He's not going to tell us everything. It's not in our best interest. And so what we need in those moments is not to figure everything out. Or what we need in that moment is to know something about God and His person, His character. Notice the four things that God shows to Isaiah. First off, He says, Isaiah, I want you to remember my position. Isaiah says, I saw Him high and lifted up. I saw Him seated upon a throne. We need to be reminded of two things concerning God's position. One, we need to be reminded He is on the throne. The throne of Israel had been left vacant, but the throne of heaven was still occupied. The throne in Israel may have been robbed of its king, but the king of heaven and the king of the universe and the king of glory, He was still seated upon His throne. Just be reminded when the fog sits down on your life that that doesn't mean God's out of control. He's still on the throne. He still has control. There's not a moment of your life but what God is aware of it and in control of it. And there's not a single thing that occurs that has happened out of God's control. God is in control at all times. He mentions uh, not only that He's on the throne, but that He's above the fog. I saw Him where? I saw Him high and lifted up. He wasn't down here viewing things where I'm at. He was up above them. You know, a good strategic rule and principle in warfare is you always want the higher ground. And part of the reason for that is because it's hard to fight uphill. But part of the reason, too, is it gives you a better vantage point. 
When people are stuck out in the wilderness, if you ever watch these survival shows, one of the first things they'll do is head for higher ground. What are they doing? They want to get a lay of the land. They want to get a vantage point. If they're under the tree canopy, they can only see what's around them. But if they can get up to high ground, they can look around and survey and take everything in. Well, you and I, listen, you can't see much when you're in the fog. I know you've experienced this, and I have too. We live here in East Tennessee in the land of hills and hillbillies. And when a fog sits down in this area... Thankfully, it ain't like being out on the plains. If a fog sits down there, you just got to live in it. But here in East Tennessee, you just got to go another 200 foot and you'll go up a hill or down a hill. And often when you're driving in a fog, it'll, it'll, it looks like it's showing up and, and dissipating and, and growing and then, but it's not. You're just driving in and out of it. You and I, we may be in the fog, but God's above the fog. And you may not be able to see everything that's going on and understand it, but God sees everything that's going on. Remember His position when the fog sets in. But then number two, remember His perfection. Isaiah says this, that when he saw that heavenly vision, God wasn't alone in His throne room. In fact, he says that there were two seraphims. And uh, seraphims, people say that, uh, that there's two different classes of angels, cherubims and seraphims. I don't believe that. I believe there is one class of, uh, of angels uh, that are winged and that are in the, the throne room. I believe cherubims and seraphims are the same type of angel. And I can give you a reason for that later if you even care to hear it. But uh, suffice it to say that these are the angels that are tasked with uh, standing by God's throne and, and attending to God's presence and declaring God's glory. And so these angels, they have six wings. They cover their face with two of them, their feet with two of them, then they fly with two of them. And all they do all day long is fly around God's throne room and cry aloud, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Man, that's the message that Isaiah needed in that moment. He didn't need the, the the reason everything had happened. He didn't need the game plan. He just needed to be reminded that God is a holy God and that He never makes any mistakes. He is perfect in every way. His holiness, His perfection is far beyond what you and I could ever comprehend. And let me make you this promise that no matter what has brought the fog into your life, it's not happened by mistake. It's happened by mandate. It's not because things have gone sideways. It's because God and His providence is working in your life. You need to be reminded of God's perfection. Number three, you need to be reminded of God's providence. It says this, that the whole earth is full of His glory. There's not a part of the earth that God is not working in. You could go to the driest deserts of uh, regions of the Sahara and God would still be at work there. May not be in a way that we would expect, but it would, He would still be at work there. You go to the darkest recesses of the jungle where no technology has ever graced that place and God is still at work there. You could go to the coldest regions of Antarctica and you'd find that the presence and providence of God is still at work there. Everywhere God Uh, or everywhere upon the earth is a place where God is working. Your life is no different. My life is no different. God is always at work. We may not be able to see or understand it, but that doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. He is providentially over everything that we are facing. And then he tells them to remember God's power. He says that the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. So this is not the voice of God, but this is the voice of the angel. And the seraphim, what's he crying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So as the glory of God is declared, as the perfection of God is declared, it literally has the ability to shake the place of God's throne room. Uh, I, we could take the time, and I, we won't tonight, but 
If you go back, every time you'll find God's voice and God's presence through the Old Testament, or on several occasions, I should say it that way, it's always accompanied by great earthquakes. For instance, the Bible describes an earthquake whenever Elijah was in the cave, that an earthquake passed by. If you were to go to Sinai, the Bible says that uh, at Sinai there were great earthquakes and lightning and, and thunder. Even if you were to look at Ezekiel's description of the throne of God, he says that whenever the uh, angels beat their wings that the earth quaked and that there was thunder sounding. Everywhere where God's presence is, things are moving. Things are shaking. The very power of God vibrates the room around Him. And that's just when the angels, not even God Himself, but when the angels are describing how glorious He is. Now what does this teach us? It teaches us that God is mighty powerful. That God's power is without limitation. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. So, now you might say, well, that's good, preacher. That means I can ask God to do something and He'll do it, right? No, that's not what it means. Because God is just as providential as He is powerful. But what it does mean is this, that whatever takes place in your life, it doesn't happen for lack of God's ability. So nothing takes place in your life because God is not powerful enough to make something else happen. It's happened on purpose. You'll find Him in the holy place. Number two, when you're struggling to find God in the fog, look for Him in the humble place. Look what Isaiah says in verse number five. After he's seen this great, this grand vision of God, he says, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. Now this is interesting when you lay it in the context of the previous five chapters. If you study through the first five chapters of Isaiah, you'll find that word woe some 20 times. But Isaiah is never talking about himself. He is pronouncing woes on the nation of Israel. And or the kingdom of Judah, I guess to be more accurate. And he's describing all of the awful things that they've done. Woe is them for this. Woe is them for that. Woe are those that do this. Woe are those that do that. And his message is very severe. It's very sober. But when you come to chapter 6... He quits talking about them and he starts talking about himself. You say, preacher, what do you mean by the humble place? Well, I want you to notice first off his consideration. He quit looking at everybody else. He started looking at himself. He says, woe is me. Listen, when the fog sets in in your life, one of the first actions you should take is a self-inventory. Ask yourself, man, is there anything in my life that is not the way that it ought to be? And I'll go ahead and tell you this. Listen, I'm not afraid to admit to you that not every time that a problem occurs in somebody's life is it due to sin. But if you're afraid to allow for the fact that a problem in your life could be because of sin, that's a good indication that there could be some sin there. Let me say it this way. If you know that what you're experiencing is not due to some sin in your life, then what are you afraid of in taking a look at your life? Again, I'm not suggesting, I don't believe Job, what happened in his life happened because of sin. In fact, the Bible says uh, very plainly that in all this, Job sinned not. It doesn't mean that he was sinless, but it does mean that he and his response to God's purging and purifying of his life did not respond to that in a sinful way. I'm not saying everything in your life bad that happens is because of sin. I'm saying that you and I are just fallen enough that it would behoove us when something does happen for us to take a moment and say, Lord... Search me and and try me. See if there be any wicked or unclean thing within me. None of us are above sin. You and I will both admit that. So why would we not, when the fog sits in in our life, use that 
both as an obligation, but as an opportunity to do a little self-checking and say, Lord, is there something in my life? Have I drawn away from you? Have I slipped away from you? Have I allowed something in my life that should not be there? I can tell you this, you'll drive yourself crazy trying to look at everybody else because you don't know their heart. And you, you can try to fix all the problems of the world. Most of the world's problems have already been fixed over a cup of coffee down at the Cracker Barrel. You know that, right? You don't have to try to fix the world's problems. But you'll get a lot more done if you'll say, woe is me. Look at yourself. We see his consideration. Then we see his confession. When he does look at himself, he finds that there are some things lacking. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah says, you know, when I did look at my life, I found out that there was some uncleanness there. There were some things in my life that had to be addressed, that had to be dealt with. Now, we could talk about the the contextual greater application of the sins of the nation of Israel and possibly maybe some areas where he as a prophet had not cried out against some things. I guess we could speculate endlessly. But what I find is that when he did find sin in his life, he confessed it. He didn't pretend it wasn't there. He didn't try to hide it. He didn't try to just go on as though nothing was wrong. And that's what a lot of us try to do. We've grown up in a society that deals with most of its problems by ignoring them. By ignoring them. And uh, as a result of that, I think it is sort of infused into us, even as Bible-believing Christians, this idea of, well, if I just ignore it, if I just go on like nothing has happened, everything will be okay. But that's not the case with God. You may be able to ignore your sin and go on and other people treat you like nothing's wrong because they don't know what's going on in your life or maybe because they themselves have sin they don't want to deal with. But God's holy and God's perfect and God's omniscient and He knows what's going on in your life and mine. And so it would behoove you to go ahead and just come clean with God. Be honest with Him. We see His confession. Notice His cleansing. The Bible says this, Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Now again, there's there's greater, uh, I, I, I would almost say dispensational truths here, but that's maybe too big of a term to use for it. There's There's a context here that it relates to the nation of Israel. But just making an application for your life and mine, let me just say this, that when he realized there was sin in his life, he confessed that sin, and then by the help of God, he put away that sin. The angel takes the coal from off the altar. Uh, Very often the fire on the altar was picture of judgment. But he takes it and he touches it to Isaiah's lips, and he says, now your iniquity is purged. It's interesting that it's through the lips that iniquity is dealt with. It's not to suggest that we don't in our lives have to respond actively, but it's to say this, and I think a good New Testament verse to lay along beside this is 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Isaiah didn't forgive himself. He didn't go and get the, the coal from off the altar himself. He didn't put it upon his lips himself. It wasn't he that absolved himself, but he confessed his sin to the Lord. And then the Lord was faithful and just to forgive him his sin and to cleanse him from all unrighteousness. In other words, if you find that a fog has settled over your life, take that as an opportunity to do a little self-inventory and look at your life and examine yourself and ask God to examine you and say, Lord, is there anything in my life that needs to be dealt with, that needs to be addressed? And if there is, deal with it. Deal with it. Don't ignore it. Don't put it off. Deal with it. 
And you'll find God in the fog. Let me give you one final thing and I'll be done tonight. Look with me at verse number 8. Isaiah says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. When the fog settles in on your life and you're struggling to find God, look in the holy place. Go back to the basic truths you know about God and and found yourself, anchor yourself in those truths. Look in the humble place. Look at yourself and say, is there anything in my life that needs to be addressed? Or we Let's say it this way. Look up at the Lord. Look in at yourself. Finally, look to the harvest place. Look out at the opportunities that are before you in the lives of others. Think with me for a moment about the imminent request that God gives. He says, whom shall I send? Whom shall I send? Can I tell you this, that God is looking to use people for His glory and for His purpose. If we believe that we cannot be used of God, that's simply something we've just told ourselves. It's not true scripturally. God's always looking for people that might be used in His service. Now, very often we want to put a thousand qualifiers on it. We want to say, well, I want to be used of God in this way. But you know what the only qualifier should be? I want to be used of God in God's way. I want God to do with my life what He wants to do with my life. I've seen a lot of young men in ministry that have failed because they surrendered to the ministry instead of to the Master. They fell in love with the concept, the idea of going and serving and and being involved in it. And when ministry didn't turn out the way they anticipated, they turned and walked away. But those that last are those that didn't answer the call to preach or the call to ministry, but those that answered the call to Christ. And that said, Lord, I'll just give my life to you. Whatever that means. I, I don't, I'm, <clears throat> I'm not gonna take the time, but I could give you my personal testimony about how God brought me into the ministry. And it was very much that way. God opened doors, I walked through them. God said, I want your life. I said, here, Lord, take every bit of it. And I've not always yielded it to Him the way that I ought to. But it wasn't through me waving a white flag and saying, okay, God, I'll preach. Rather, it was through God saying, give me all of yourself. I said, okay, Lord. And as I did, God began to confirm His calling upon my life in ministry. There's no dispute, no doubt about it. But I'm saying it didn't come through a surrender to ministry. It came through a surrender to the Master. And so very often we want to say, God, I'll serve you in this way. When in fact what we should say is, Lord, I'll serve you in your way. Whatever that means, whatever that requires. God's looking for people to serve Him. If you don't know how you can get started and get busy, hey, listen, there's a lost and dying world out there in need of the gospel. And the preeminent work of the Christian is the sharing of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make that your passion. Make that your work. Everywhere you go, hand out tracts. Engage with people in conversations. Ask them where they're going when when they die. Just get involved in the work of God. We see the imminent request. Then notice the empowering resource. He says, whom shall I send? And then he he restates this with a special emphasis. He says, who will go for us? Implication being this, we are not going to go, but we need someone to go in our stead. I would imagine this, any time that a king in the Old Testament, and that's who we're dealing with, right, is a king. 
Throughout history, when they would send someone as their emissary, as their ambassador, as their messenger, they'd give them a royal seal, and with that would be the authority of the king, and they'd be given letters of passage, much the same way that uh, Cyrus did for, or not, yeah, Cyrus did for Ezra, and uh, later on that the king did for Nehemiah, letters that would gain them passage throughout the lands. And what they were saying is this, you're going for me, I'm sending you in my name, so I am empowering you for this quest and for this task. Can I make a very simple observation? If you're struggling to find God, get busy in God's business and He'll have to have something to do with you. Now, listen, I know that's maybe a funny way to say it and I'm not suggesting God doesn't want something to do with us, but I'm saying this, that if you're involved in the work of God and if you're sincere, how can God not make His presence and power known to you if He expects you to carry out His work? We see the empowering resource and then there's not much to say about it, but just look at the enlisting response. What does Isaiah say? He said, here am I, send me. (laughs) Man, I said there's not a lot to say about it. There is a lot we could say about it. Here am I. It's almost his way of saying, well, I don't know about anybody else, but I'm here. I'm not looking at anybody else, but I'm here. I don't know what else anybody's going to do, but I'm here. Very often when the fog settles in in our life, One of the chief things we just have to do is make up our mind that we're going to live for God and trust God and serve God in spite of what any or everybody else does. Here am I. We also need to recognize that even in that situation we find ourselves in, from that moment, we can begin to serve God. He didn't say, there will I be and then I'll serve Him. He didn't say, there you'll take me and then I'll go. He said, here am I. Send me. Lord, if you're dealing with me in this moment then evidently you expect me to respond in this moment. And I need to quit sitting on my hands and say, all right, Lord, if you expect something of me, I'll respond now. And I'll make this my mission, my life, now. He says, send me, send me. So a good way to find God is in the harvest place. We look up, we go back to the basic principles, we go to the holy place, and we find that God is still God, even if the fog has settled on our lives. We go to the humble place, we look inward, And we recognize that sometimes we're struggling to find God because our sins have distanced us from Him and we've turned away from Him and we have allowed sin to become an obstacle and a barrier in our communion and fellowship with Him. We're just as saved as we've ever been. But it's hard. How can two walk together except they be agreed? It's hard to have close, intimate fellowship with the Lord when we got sin in our lives. And then very often, it's because God's trying to draw us into the harvest place. And we'll find Him there waiting on us. He's the Lord of the harvest. We'll find Him there waiting for us. Very often He's trying to draw us into a greater commitment and devotion and and active service for Him and to Him. I think if we look in those three places, it don't matter how thick the fog is, I think we're going to find God, don't you?